Interest rates were going to go over 5% for sure. And um, so yesterday I was talking to a friend of mine that um, is a financial advisor over at Merrill Lynch, and he said they were all betting on the 10-year being over 3.5. By the by end now. of the year? By now. By now. And, uh, and it's not. So it, it's really just, it's kind of strange how the the sort of paranoia about this had a bigger impact than the actual uh, unwinding of that purchasing. Well, yeah, and I, I feel like the disconnect is with the stock market kind of, I don't know if misrepresenting is the right word, but it, it doesn't seem to accurately reflect the the state of the economy the economy is not gangbusters right now yet we're at near all-time highs or all-time highs in the stock market i learned a new term yesterday what's that zombie stocks <laughs> these guys were like i was on this website was talking about how um you, like what you're saying the stock market's been going a little bit faster than it probably should or maybe a little bit stronger than what our true economy demands and but stocks just keep rising in light of it and saying that the zombie stocks will continue to climb the mountain no matter what. And I, I just thought that was kind of funny because oftentimes I've thought that same thing. Why are the stocks hitting all-time highs? And, you know, we kind of got there and then fell back off of it and then and then came back again. And this go-round, I'd say there's a little bit more uh, momentum to it but than the last time a few months ago. Well, and, you know, last week's show, we had David Crichton from Blakesley and Blakesley on, and and I, I, we didn't really go into that show with a big plan, but I came out of it with a kind of an, it felt like a an eye-opening experience. He was very positive, very um, optimistic about the future of business, um, about the state of our U.S. economy and and where it was heading, um, and it, a big reason for his optimism was just the fact that the world is so connected now, and so many there are so many emerging markets that are growing and developing new consumers that are going to be buying products that the future's bright. There's there's more consumers every day um, that are they're industrializing they're becoming more mature economies and and going to be better consumers than they've been in the past and that's going to drive business in the future um at the same time some of the other economic giants in the world particularly in europe they're struggling and so there there's twofold here there's there's emerging markets that are going to help drive the consumer side of the market and then there's no real other great investment opportunity when you're looking at some of the the areas like Europe to invest your money. So where else are you going to put your money? You're going to put it in stocks where where they're they're driven to supply products to those consumers that are emerging and then like Apple. And then you're looking at safety, which are is the bond market. So you're you're seeing investment in bonds at the same time you're seeing stocks at all-time highs and and I it's kind of unusual because you see those things particularly stocks and you'd expect that our economy is just robust and flourishing and that's really not where we're at right now so it's a very unusual time so what are some of the stocks then that you think are um i mean there's got to be some pieces of the market that sort of fit that piece though that haven't recovered aren't doing great because they're not just consumer based or 
fear-based, I guess we should say. And I, one that gets looked to quite a bit is like the Caterpillar stock, you know, that make all the heavy equipment and that kind of stuff that shows that we're, we're chugging along and building. Um, I don't keep up with those stocks well enough to know, but it seems to me that how much of the stock market can actually be based on companies that are making consumable goods? Well, right. And I, I hear what you're saying. I, I think the things that are struggling right now are things like the, the financial sector. They, they've rebounded quite nicely, but I think going forward, there's, there's a lot of mixed opinions about financials and those aren't really consumer based necessarily. I mean, some of those banks, I, I can't I don't know their business models too well, but I got to imagine they're they are overseas and do have some reach over there. But it's not the kind of company where they're selling to the average consumer, um, you know, their good or service on a daily basis. I mean, I guess they could be. But I, again, I don't really know their business model that well. Um, and then, like you're saying, the the home builder type of related things, those are still kind of plodding along. I mean, the it looks like there should be some growth there because there's a need. Um, but there's very few companies in as far as home builders go that are that are overseas. There's only a couple of international type of builder companies that I can think of. So yeah, it's the the companies that I think are really poised for the best growth are the companies that are already staked overseas and and are already reaching those consumers it's the you know mcdonald's nike. corporation the coca-colas the pepsis the nikes those kind of things that are reaching overseas the smartphone manufacturers who are already you know invested overseas those companies i think are really looking good for the future so it was it i had an interesting takeaway last week and i i felt like there were so many more questions that i wanted to ask david while he was here you know one of the big things that i was thinking about a lot this week was that while there may be a pretty bright future for stocks because of the emerging markets opportunities and things like that that doesn't necessarily in my opinion translate to a real strong jobs market here at home um well we don't produce a lot of those companies that you just named off too a lot of that stuff isn't actually manufactured here so while the sales may be good, um, if the manufacturing jobs are in another part of the, the world. So I think that's another reason why, why these markets just seem kind of disconnected um, is the economy is different. It's, it's, it's so much different than it's ever been before with, with the way the world is connected economically. Oh. Um, so it, it's going to be interesting to see how jobs recover. I mean, I think there's some amount of recovery that has to happen just at a corporate level because so many of the corporations are based here. You know, those companies that, that do have international reach, they're still headquartered here on U.S. turf, so the corporate side might grow. Um, so you bring up jobs. Jobs this week was one of the highlights. Um, the initial jobless claims number was sort of just jaw-dropping um, initial claims for unemployment benefits fell by 24,000 shattering expectations to a seasonally adjusted 297,000 jobs this is um, the lowest that we've seen um, since May of 2007 so we're we're arguably here the, this week 
after I mean we had we had three weeks in a row of jobless claims not being great, but for the most part, out of the last twenty weeks, these numbers have been really good. The four week average is nice and low. Getting a reading of initial jobless claims of less than three hundred thousand is huge. I really expect that uh, I'm starting to to believe here that we're going to see this number hover around that point now, and uh, that that really what that suggests is that we are gearing up. Um, losing less jobs sort of supports what happened last month, which is the creation of jobs and. If we have another good jobs month like this, where we could actually really start to get some uh, traction here, that's that's pretty good. I mean, two hundred ninety-seven thousand claims in in the week is, um, you know, like I say, that's that's pre-recession lows. That's great news. So, what you're saying is some of these companies don't necessarily translate into a strong jobs market. So, if that's true, then there's other factors at play here, which are causing people to um, you know, companies are laying off less. People are having jobs. And at the same time, we have a, a month now under our belt. I'm, I'm on one month of good job gains. Which is, is great. And I, I do think that we are, I mean, we are recovering. But the robust growth that David was describing last week isn't going to be solely due to what's going on here at home. And that's no. why you're going to see jobs, the job, the the country's job market improve at a much slower pace than probably the growth of of these multinational corporations because there's more opportunity for them um while i i agree that that the you know losing less than two three hundred thousand jobs a week is is a good number it is a pre-recession type of number there's still a lot of talk about the quality and the number of people who are still unemployed. There was uh, California jobless numbers that I saw this week where there's still one and a half million Californians that are out of work. And we always, we, we, we know that these unemployment numbers have been falling and they look really good on paper, but there's more to the story than just that, that rate because of the way they count people. What's California 30 million? About that, yeah, thirty three, thirty five ish, I think. I think it's close to that. I, I could be off though, because when I was at school, we learned, a, you know, a lot about populations and where people were spread out and stuff. For some reason, I remember California was about twenty seven million then, so maybe yeah, somewhere around thirty million. So that doesn't actually seem like that much, a mil and a half or a million. I mean, if it is only thirty million, that's few three percent can that be right jim's looking up the 38 million but that's in 2012 numbers so it's slightly yeah. higher wow yeah well as you were saying <laughs> you were just saying that there there's still a lot of californians that are unemployed yeah and there's still a lot of americans that are unemployed and the folks who are being counted as employed, a lot of the people who've recovered jobs Less have great. recovered jobs that are below their skill level or below their desired pay rate. And, you know, I, we're, I think we really hit the nail on the head last week when we talked about it's 
It is a slow. We this is the slowest jobs recovery we've had um, in the history of U.S. recessions, um, and until we reach something that we consider to be near full employment, it's not going to be good jobs. We're not going to see the good jobs emerge. Sure. We're you know David even said that we're going to start seeing temp jobs you know start to peak up a little bit and then once those temp jobs turn into real jobs then you're going to start seeing job quality improve while the maybe the unemployment rate remains more steady yeah agreed this week i stumbled across um the nfib that's a fun one i know you don't know that one i i had heard of it before but couldn't define it the national federation of independent business they keep a index called the Small Business Optimism Index. And this index rose um, 1.8 points, which seems like it's suspended without context. But the bottom line here is that it's a post-recession uh, high. This, this is the highest reading on the Small Business Optimism Index since 2007. And... The uh, the respondents here said that um, workers are adding more hours, um, and they have um, this this one kind of fascinated me. Fifty one percent of the business uh, respondents here said that they attempted to hire or hired. Um, of the fifty one percent that hired or attempted to hire. Uh, more than 40% say they were few or no qualified job seekers. Isn't that fascinating? I mean, we keep laboring the point here that there aren't good head of household jobs. And then we hear in the small business sector that more than 51% of these people tried to hire in the last three months and found few applicants or less than skilled applicants. The fact that they're looking for somebody with skills makes me believe that these aren't the kind of jobs that you're walking into for 1500 bucks a month, but some kind of job where it's a few thousand dollars a month because you're expected to have some sort of experience or qualification to, to have the job. So kind of fascinating that the small business um, here is struggling on filling those roles with um, – not only applicants, but even skilled applicants. It sort of defies logic ever so slightly. It does. The other piece of uh, last last week, some data here was that retail sales slammed on the brakes in the month of April. And when we talk about consumer spending being what pulls us out of these recessions, I mean, we kind of started this segment here with that idea last week talking with David Crichton that it's about how many new consumers there are. It's not just the consumers that are on American soil, but elsewhere. Um, to find out here in the U.S., retail sales had pretty decent gains in February and March. And then all of a sudden, um, we just see it. The index is just held back. We, we had um, steady declines in furniture, electronics, appliances. This one... This group is surprising to me. Declines in restaurants and bars and on online retailers. Altogether, um, people just aren't spending that money. I suspect maybe it's because they're paying a little extra for health care this month, but hey, who knows? The February and March, or I'm sorry, what was, you said February yeah. and March yeah. gains, those were largely attributed to 
the inactivity that occurred during right. the polar vortex. <laughs> um, so you, you couldn't get out to get that new right. VCR you needed. So now they they rebounded and now they flattened out again. And that you know kind of bringing things full circle here from where we started the. It seems like there are disconnects here. There's there's highs in stocks because of opportunity outside of America. Zombie so stocks. I have the zombie stocks. I think <laughs> that I, I've heard numbers, projections for GDP in the U.S. that the new normal is going to be closer to 2% instead oh, of 3%. I thought you were going to say that the second quarter is expected to be 5 to 6% because I've been reading about that. Possibly, possibly. See, we're all over the place. Well, but and this it, way it, you can't be wrong. You got a reading from two to six. Put one in there. Somewhere. Well, I think the number I'm throwing out was was more of a long term type of number that the new normal is going to be closer to two percent down from three, <sighs> and that we, that's just how it is. It's going funny. Forward. I just I got a laugh at it though because you raised me telling me that this was a benchmark number that for the old capitalism engine to be running on all cylinders it needed to be at three and a half percent and now why of suddenly this is like fourth grade when they explain to you that there's no such thing as a remainder it becomes a fraction why would we take gdp and reduce it what's the logic behind that that it's just more sustainable maybe maybe there maybe our growth dreams have just been unrealistic well I, I I'm not following you. I, GDP historically has been around three percent. That's right. the target, and going forward, projections are that it's going to be closer to two percent. That it's going to fall off a little bit. But that's not to say that these companies are going to struggle because worldwide GDP is continuing to grow. No, I understand what you're saying. I'm asking: Is it that are we just being tempered to accept two percent as the norm? because that's good or is two percent just going to be what happens and we should deal with it i don't know i i think that it's a <laughs> projection of what is going to happen without trying to manipulate anything that's what i read it as i just i'm always looking <laughs> at all these headlines and the the expectation you know what they're what's the ultimate goal here in the headline and you see big words being used to sort of create some excitement when it's good news and then you see clever headlines trying to downplay things that um, aren't particularly good news and the fact that we're just expecting lower gdp i can't say i understand why it's like it's like saying we, because less people are working than we want and they're <laughs> earning less money those who are working so right. they have less money to spend so instead of <laughs> keeping the focus and pressure on creating head of household jobs we'll just everyone get cozy now with lower gdp we're giving up on the creating i don't jobs. think we're supposed to you know be warm and fuzzy about it it's just the reality okay the economy is changing yeah it's more of an international economy and less of an American centric economy. I just what I'm saying is I don't want to see the the bar lowered. I don't either. We when we started this race, we were told that we should be going after three and a half percent. We should be. It's not to say that we should stop. It's just... everyone's tired. We're taking a lap off the race. It's good. <laughs> we're just gonna do two this time. It's just been hard. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, maybe I latched onto that a little yeah, bit I much. Think so. <laughs> All right. Hey, guys, it's just after 1030. Here we go. Do the first commercial break. Take time out to thank the sponsors. When we get back, 
We have another half an hour to go before we're joined by Wes Burke from Patterson Realty. So stick with us for more Mortgage Matters. Mortgage Matters with host Dan and Jason will be right back. Join the conversation by calling 543-8830 or 800-549-5832. The 5th Annual Oyster and Beer Feast kicks off Sunday, June 8th at Tognazini's Dockside 2. The party starts at 11 a.m. Tickets are just 20 bucks and include a half dozen oysters with your choice of size, raw or barbecue, a pitcher of beer or soda, entertainment, and live auction. Plus, free corn dogs and sodas for the kids. 100% of the proceeds help keep fireworks in Morro Bay. We'll see you at the 5th Annual Oyster and Beer Feast Sunday, June 8th at Tognazini's Dockside 2. Presented by Morro Bay 4th, Tognazini's, and this radio station. For those of us who live here on the Central Coast, we know this is a unique place to have a home. And for over 30 years, Patterson Realty has been a vital part of San Luis Obispo County. Patterson professionals have led the way in real estate by adapting to new market conditions to make sales happen. What they offer is the quality of their people, agents working just for you. Get the experts at Patterson Realty on your side. Experience the Patterson difference. Call 544-8662 or online at pattersonrealty.com. Through seven presidential administrations, bull and bear markets, and unprecedented change, Blakesley and Blakesley has been here helping residents of the Central Coast reach their financial goals. So if you need retirement advice beyond Social Security, want to roll over an old 401k, or simply seek guidance through an important financial decision, visit Blakesley and Blakesley in San Luis Obispo, Paso Robles, and Santa Maria. Blakesley and Blakesley, for the service you deserve and the advice you trust. Member FINRA and SIPC. The state of denial is a drag and a trial. When I bought my cheap insurance, should have known this day would come. Now I've had an accident and I'm feeling quite alone. Called them at least 20 times, but they won't pick up the phone. Without personal service, my policy's kind of worthless. Get to a better state, State Farm. Switch to State Farm and you can save. To find out more in San Luis Obispo, call Agent Susan Rodriguez. Hi, this is Jason Grody at Central Coast Lending, host of Mortgage Matters on KVEC. We recently made the jump to direct lender. That's right, now we can do your loan in-house, but we still broker too. We choose based on getting the best loan terms for you. We don't know what to call it yet, but you'll call it amazing. Refi or refinance a home, just call 543-LOAN, just call 543-LOAN. We're the mortgage experts on the Central Coast, Central Coast Lending. You're listening to Mortgage Matters on KVEC News Talk 920. If you missed any part of the show, log on to centralcoastlending.com for archived shows and more. Now, back to your hosts, Dan and Jason from Central Coast Lending. Hot town, summer in the city, back of my neck getting dirt and gritty. Then down, isn't it a pity? Doesn't seem to be a shadow in the city. All around, people looking half dead, walking on the sidewalk harder than a match But the night it's different. All right, everybody, welcome back to Mortgage Matters. Hey, I got a, I got a little insider tip here for you. What's that? Susan Rodriguez, that advertises um, on our show here. She's a State Farm agent. She's also my personal insurance agent. Her office takes great care of all of my insurance needs. They are on Broad Street, right, right near town. I think it's in between Pacific and Marsh. Thirteen Seventeen Broad Street. Very good. You just picked that up from the commercial. Yeah, I just, I just know things. Well, so here's the deal. 
she's got a couple of giveaways going on, and she asked me to bring it up on the radio. Oh, what's she giving away? Is this to customers, existing customers? Negative. Dang. N people that come in for an auto quote, if she quotes one of your autos, she's going to put your name in a hat for two season tickets to the Blues. If you have five autos to have quoted, five tickets for you will go into the hat for season tickets to the Blues. I'm going to switch insurance and then switch back. That's what I'm going to do. If Just you're so an existing client, uh -huh. then any referral that you send her, she'll put you in and uh, whatever they end up quoting um, that many times for you and your referral. All right. So for all the people on the radio who go and talk to Susan, just tell them <laughs> that it was Dan, not Jason, who sent you. Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. All right. That's pretty cool. <laughs> I mean, wouldn't you like to have some season tickets to the Blues? Yeah. I would. We went to, what, one or two Blues games last year. It was so much fun. They're great. It's it's just good to go out and watch baseball. I mean, it, yeah. it sure is fun. Um, and then additionally, I'm not, I couldn't find the email right now. Forgive me. Um, she's got tickets to other games that are just available. And um, you can go drop by her office and just pick them up. So she has some Cal Poly tickets. No, they're, they're also for the blues games, but just, um, she's got tickets available and interested in, in having people come by her office to pick, pick them up just to meet people. And, uh, cool. So go check it out. She's got that little red Volkswagen beetle with the, uh, oh, isn't that Sally, Sally slug, bug? slug bug. There you go. Slug you bug. pay close attention to these things, huh? <laughs> But yeah, I mean, all in all, I, I usually do encourage people to um, to talk with them about your insurance need. They are uh, really thorough and talented. State Farm, I just can't say enough good things about the quality of the company. They also have um, Spanish-speaking staff. That's uh, just a great service if you need or know somebody that does need Spanish-speaking help. Uh, great company. I can't say enough good things about Susan Rodriguez and her and her, not only her own office, but also the company she represents in State Farm. So, there you go. Very cool. It would be great if a bunch of people from the radio called and said they were referred by us, so we could get our name in the hat and win the Blues tickets. Yeah. Or or those people that get the quotes. I mean, I guess it'd be nice if they got them too. Sure. <laughs> Maybe we could bring. We them. could all go together. <laughs> That'd be fun. All right. So this week there's a couple of other readings here that um, came on. And uh, producer price index and consumer price index. Before we do that, I, I was eager to, to circle back with you on this one because you pointed out GDP we were talking about a minute ago. Fourth quarter GDP was kind of – a good reading on account of uh, inventories. Businesses had produced a lot, but they filled up their own shelves. And it was blamed on that cold winter. Said that people couldn't get out and shop the way they needed to. And we should expect once things thaw out a little bit, we'll have some good shopping. April, the shopping wasn't great. But anyway, we learned of business inventories in the month of March. Guess what happened? way down let me rephrase it are manufacturers actually selling what they're making or are they putting it on the shelves 
on the shelves. It's on the shelves. Sadly, uh, in- inventories grew in the month of March. So obviously, a lot of lot of eyes will be watching close for the April numbers that are due out in a couple of weeks here. But it's just not great news to know that those GDP that which is under fire right now, the higher GDP numbers, the most recent strong numbers are actually questionable because the inventories that they put on the shelves are sort of what pushed it up, and we're seeing that trend continue still. Um, so now that we're sort of hacked through. The production side of that and inventories, we had a couple readings here. Producer price index. What do you think? It was up. It was up. And, um, you know, so there hasn't been any problem with inflation in years, obviously. The feds are closely watching inflation. And Um, they've noted several times that we're under target. Under target. That's not a good thing. I think that's been largely why the feds have wanted to go through the... um, pulling out of the the bond and mortgage-backed securities purchase they've been making, try to take some of the capital out and see what happens. And David Crichton pointed this out last week too, but having all of that money back off of the table, yeah, the balance sheets are going to take a decade or more to unwind, but having the ability to do the stimulus of coming in and injecting money into the market, we haven't had that ability um, for... Six years? How long has it been? Yeah, I like how he phrased it. We're putting tools back in the toolbox. Right. And so we're uh, keeping a close eye here on producer prices. Um, The highest it's been in one and a half years. Food prices surged. And it's a potential sign that uh, maybe inflationary pressures are beginning to build. When you kind of zoom out a little bit as to why food prices went up, um, part of it is because of the drought. It's costing more money now to grow food. And so you could argue that it's not the feds that's causing inflation. But um, I read a funny article this morning that said it's it's climate change, not the feds. And um, though I did think it was a little bit tongue-in-cheek, I sort of said... That kind of makes sense to me. It It is costing a little bit more. It's a little bit harder, and the yields are a little bit lower. And when you go through these droughts and heat waves like this, it does increase those costs a little bit. But nonetheless, it is good to see some, some inflation happening. Um, and the next piece here is the consumer price index, which is measuring the average price of a fixed basket of goods for consumers. April crept up since the largest percentage of last summer. Higher costs of gasoline, higher costs of shelter, higher costs of food. Um, And the Labor Department is who kicks all this stuff, says that April was the largest one-month jump since June, where it was tied at a plus 0.3%, and that prices altogether on the consumer side are up 2% over the last 12 months. And if you do go that one step further to remove the volatile food and energy sectors, it's still up 1.8%. So those are those are numbers that are just showing that we are beginning to see a little bit of inflation. And whether that is more environmentally based, policy based, um, supply or demand based, no matter where you want to try to pin it down and maybe it's a a combination of a little bit of everything but seeing a little bit of the inflation come on 
um, which is what ultimately the feds really wanted to see running below that inflation number for years on end well wasn't the bond buying supposed to increase the inflationary pressure so wouldn't pulling out of that program decrease it yes and that was one of the one of the concerns about when you begin to pull out of it but see it depends, uh, you know, and obviously I'm no economist, but my my feeling of it is, is that it depends a little bit. Um, there's different parts of that cycle. And when you when you inject all of the money, then you're you're sort of devaluing the dollar, giving that opportunity for everything to be a little bit more expensive. When you pull the money out, though, that lack of liquidity in the market is going to raise interest rates, which is going to create a higher cost to borrow and a higher cost to produce, which is going to create um, a little Higher bit prices. of inflation there too. So it's inflation working from different angles. And I think because of where we are in the cycle right now, that's the part that we are hoping begins to happen is that because of the overall strength and recovery of the economy, we'll see higher prices because of higher yields and higher interest rates. And I think a lot of people hear inflation and they think, isn't that bad? And too much inflation can be bad, but we want a little bit of inflation because it helps keep money moving through the economy. It, it, it incentivizes the consumer to not just have money sit around because the idea is that tomorrow and the next day, your money's only becoming a little less valuable. So spend it today while it's more valuable. And when the economy's sluggish like it is, we want to incentivize money to start moving a little more freely through the economy. So that's why we always like to have a small bit of inflation to help keep that incentive going, but not too much so that it's it's scary about with, what your dollar is going to be worth. With stagnant wage growth, though, you also kind of got to be careful what you wish for. I mean, that's the other part of this is that we need to create those jobs, um, get the head of household jobs back. But at the same time, we got to be growing the uh, the wages here. I mean, last I heard, and I don't have this in front of me now, but we were talking about wages being equivalent to where they were in 2002 and three. That was, maybe that was okay when there was no inflation and home values were back to what they were in 02, 03. However, today, home values are back to where they were in 06, 07, largely. That that feels funny to say, by the way. I mean, how many years have we sit here with these microphones in front of us saying, I don't know if it's ever going to go back to what it was. And um, surprisingly enough, it's pretty close in a lot of places. But the wages are not back to what they were. Yeah, we need to figure out how to start making some things here that it's it makes financial sense to do so um i was thinking about that last week you know we were talking about how now the the international trend you know we've there's always been this exploitation of cheap labor that's occurred right. in markets and <clears throat> you know it went to went to asia to india to i guess china india now we're seeing emerging markets or these funds in africa because africa is the new you know, low wage opportunity for manufacturers. I call it the exploitable labor force. <laughs> Once um, the, you know, we've exploited this yeah. cheap labor force, are we then the next one on the food chain? Does it come full circle back here? No. No? No. Are we then uh, part of not the cheap labor at some point? I, I, 
I don't want to come off as some sort of an advocate or something. And I, and I speak about this in sort of a crass way because I'm, I'm relatively unimpressed by this, but here's the phenomenon as I see it. The exploitable labor force is the, the opposite of what we call mature society. These are people that are willing because they're so destitute. They're willing to work in terrible conditions for crap wages in an environment that is usually unsafe. And what happens and like what's what happened here in the U S is a great example of this. As soon as your labor force matures into a society that says, Hey, we deserve a higher quality of life. We deserve a fair wage. We deserve a safe working environment. We deserve all of these things because we're all people and we're tired of seeing the division of wealth. That then you start creating all this, you know, the laws and environmental policies and you have things like OSHA and minimum wage and uh, overtime hours like this kind of stuff. And it just that's the natural progression. So once a, a new society gets a little too hip to knowing what they're worth, you got to go find another group of people that are exploitable and don't have all of those mechanisms in place. And so at some point, we're going to run out of people to find unless we start Correct. finding Martians or something. So no, at some point, yeah, it, it runs its course. And will there be an opportunity to go back and double dip in it? Probably. I mean, not everybody's going to be able to pull it together quite as good as the U.S. has. You know, when you're talking about that consumer spending stuff and uh, everything a minute ago, Dan, I, I started I started thinking about how much has changed today in the way that we shop and how the profit margins today have got to be thinner than ever because of the access and offering of even of a single product. For example, I can go on over to Target, which you're led to believe that Target is the cheapest everything, right? Because they're the big box store that everybody hates. But you can go in there with your smartphone and get yourself one of the programs that uses your phone's camera to take a picture, and it will load you with pages full of opportunities to buy that same product elsewhere, on foot or online, for a cheaper price. You see it everywhere. You see it with hotels. You see it with you know, airfare. There's all these sites that compile everybody's price and give it to you in the order of lowest to right. cheapest or based on amenities or whatever sure. you want. I uh, caught that at Walmart the other day. Yeah. They always lower prices always. Yeah. Hmm. So I think, uh, you know, I had a lettuce was like 30 cents more expensive than it was just at the grocery store next door. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. That, you know, that phenomenon is, you know, uh, is one I always I always latch onto yeah, that. I think uh -huh. that's a good one. It's like once they get you in the door under yeah. the guise, it's like Geico. Mm. If if you have Geico, chances are you're paying more than you would if you went to a mm. company like State Farm. Mm -hmm. The reality is that you're paying for that marketing of that. Hey, we're the cheapest. Yeah. Well, how much did it cost you to run that commercial? Tell me how cheap you are. Exactly. I don't see Albertsons, you know, running those same cheap commercials as walmart is yeah. yet you'll go find right next door to that albert's that you know walmart down there that you could get those same groceries next door usually for cheaper i have a dollar store just within walking distance of my house so i walk there a lot well bottle of shampoo dollar dollar are dollar. they the cheapest have you I have you scanned their prices i don't know they're not sometimes
Sometimes they're not. <laughs> but depends what it is. Yeah, it depends. Yeah. And their quality too. So. My point is I think that what we're up against today is thinner profit margins across the board. If you're a retailer, it's not like, you know, when when your parents were kids and the the Smiths in town owned the store. And you hope that they got in more of those cool tents, those camping tents, because you wanted to get one but didn't get it in time, and there was only two. When it comes in, they go, oh, we mark up camping equipment by 20%, and that's fair. We put it on the shelves. We've got all these labor costs and you know overhead and everything. Today, it's like you go online and look it up, and Amazon's got it on a drop shipping program coming out of a factory or your warehouse in some other part of the world. And they're happy to sell it to you for a 2 or 3% gain. They don't care. They weren't going to have the sale otherwise, and 3% is better than nothing. After all, they're not even in possession of the goods. <laughs> they just put it on their website. You buy it, somebody else is going to throw it in the mail to you. So it's a it's sort of a, a whole difference now of the way that people are shopping and the profits that can even be made. And I worry that, um, and this, by the way, I would argue has the recession, I think, has done good at creating better shoppers out of people, helping people understand where to get those better value deals and to worry more than ever about parting with money and Therefore, the way that we shop has changed enough that uh, maybe that's why some of the wages are still stagnant is because the profit margins are down and they can't afford to, to restore them because we now require uh, that most affordable shopping. Who knows? Just the theory. It's got to be a, a pretty tough thing to deal with all of this um, the ever-changing landscape here of all these economics because it's new business every day oh yeah and you you know you don't you don't there's no way of saying hey well 40 years ago this is what we did when that happened because you know this was going to work we pulled that lever today it's like yeah we never saw a facebook ipo that went for some crazy amount of money and it's hard to understand what the value of that is anyway Pretty bizarro. But I, I look across the board this week, though. There was a lot of really good news. Um, finishing off the week. Well, actually, I'm going to save that one for when Wes gets here. Because I want to talk a little bit about that. We had housing starts and building permits. But uh, the other uh, piece of data that came out at the end of the week, which sort of threw another mixed spin on it, is the industrial... Uh, I moved away from my page too quick. I thought I could just say it. industrial production and capacity utilization duo. That's something for me to say fluently. I, ha I have to be reading. Um, but this is just a, a look at uh, production and what's going on in the country. Industrial production dropped 0.6% in April. You want to know why? This is fascinating to me. Because people aren't buying as much as is on the shelves. Utilities. So utility output tumbled during the month as people were using less to heat their homes. So, uh, uh, yeah, take a second to kind of process that. Utility use spending on utilities is in that number. Yes. Interesting. So then what you end up with is um, cold weather helped 
prop up the economic numbers, right? Due to you increased utility usage, and now that we have the um, the weather, it's, it's sort of like having it both ways. It's to say that now, oh wait, now we're not using as much, so this number is going down. It was a it was a reading before that was based on you know something that was not necessarily optional, but probably just people trying to survive. And then and then the other part of that too is just the um, let's see here, um, the drop in that number was fast more than the uh, 0.2%. It dropped by 0.4%, and uh, March was revised upwards. Um, and capacity utilization fell too. So the basically the short version here is that both of those numbers are less than they were expected to be, which shows that um, production and capacities here just aren't quite what they should have been. All in all, I think that the week's headlines had some good, some a um, lot of good news, maybe a little bit of mixed, but really the, the shiners there... Um, Initial jobless claims was really just a wowing number. So it's just just pretty good. Um, to sort of tie this into the whole interest rate market, Dan, you touched on this earlier. Interest rates are at... Um, Six-month lows. Yeah, basically. really about a six-month low. And uh, this week we've had people even resurfacing for refinance transactions. I, I talked with several people this week that came what in. Are th those are... Oh, when people with mortgages get a lower rate. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Haven't seen those for a bit. Why? <laughs> I, that's fascinating to me that, that the refinance really has almost gone away entirely. Um, the fever is out of the air, so people aren't talking about it anymore. But there's still an awful lot of people could stand to benefit for, for uh, a refi. I mean... This week, the 30-year fix, if you have good credit, equity, and employment, it's like four and a quarter with no points. I I did a, a report last week. We we're required to do um, quarterly reporting to the National Mortgage Licensing Service. And right. for the first quarter of this year, our our mix of purchase versus refi volume was about 75% purchase, 25% refinance, which is about flipped from where we were yeah, a year ago um, when it was, you know, primarily refinances, people getting out of four five, 6% interest rates into 3% rates. I'm shocked that it was 25%, honestly. That it was that much? Yeah. Yeah. It. I mean, there's still folks refinancing for purpose. You know, they have a maybe beyond just getting a, a lower payment um but yeah it's it's amazing how so quickly it's it's flipped wow and that really matches the you know larger trends that we see in the state and country that's right that's been the norm for the companies across the u.s well i bring up that rate talk because if if you have any kind of a loan that you feel like you need some help with you want us to take a look at it you can give us a call um we do have people that are willing to take your call even today so you can call us the number is 543 loan which is 543-5626 additionally you could get in touch with us if you want to just go to the website centralcoastlending.com you can uh check us out there check out the rate calculators there's a couple of options where you could apply or just put in some contact info to get somebody in touch with you 
I think it's generally worth looking into. Uh, and as a reminder, you can still get a, a good 15-year loan in the low threes. So there's a there's stuff worth talking about. Um, we'd love to hear from you. We got the next hour coming up here. We're going to bring in Wes Burke from Patterson Realty. And uh, we'll, we'll wrap it up in that hour. So stick with us for more Mortgage Matters. Welcome back. You're listening to Mortgage Matters with host Dan and Jason from Central Coast Lending. If you want to join the conversation, call the show at 543-8830 or 800-549-5832. Now, here's Dan and Jason. All right, everybody, welcome back to Mortgage Matters. Thanks so much for being with us. It's 1105. It's a beautiful, sunny Saturday. Smack dab in the middle of allergy season. Do I sound nasal? A little. Very. Very. I feel terrible. I really do. And Wes, Wes came in, though, and brought me some uh, some pills. They're the... What from the witch doctor though, right? <laughs> She's not a witch doctor. We don't say that kind of thing on air, Jason. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> Moving on. She's an acupuncturist and a, uh, I think a naturopath. Okay. And I used to be just like you this time of year, uh, just as bad, if not worse. And about two, two and a half years ago, I started seeing Laurel Doyle. She's amazing. And, uh, she did a little acupuncture on me and she gave me these pills. They're, they're some kind of Chinese herb, and my allergies tend to kick in about my daughter's birthday, which is May 6th. So it happened this year. I started to feel it coming on, and I started taking those herbs, and uh, I've been fine ever since. So I really would advocate that you give it a shot. I just – you brought them. I threw them down the hatch, man. Yeah. I'm hoping by the end of the show I'll sound clear. Maybe you will. I, I'm afraid you may need to take them for a day or so before it really starts to help you, but – I thought this year I was ducking it because, like you say, mine happened right around about that first week in May. And I know that because it pretty much ruins my birthday every year. And then sometime, um, you know, around the middle or so about now is when it breaks. But this week's the week it's starting. I thought you uh, normally hammered a bunch of Claritin and beat it that way. It ain't working. Are you on it? Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, I'm telling you, you should go see Laurel Dole. She's amazing. You look down there at old Dan. No ailments, no allergies. No. What's never up even with had that, a cavity. Man? I don't know. Good I, eyes. I don't need glasses either. <laughs> have yeah. you ever even broken a bone? I have, yeah. Oh, okay. I broke a pinky. Oh. Just a pinky. Catching a football. You got a black nail right now, too. Yeah, I did crush my finger a few weeks ago. That was because he shattered diamonds with his finger. <laughs> <laughs> Superman. <laughs> Hey, well, Wes, thanks for being in here today. I appreciate you. And, my pleasure. Um, I, I just wanted to just throw this out there and see what, what you wanted to say about it here. Um, a couple weeks ago, we ran a rerun on the show, and there was a surprising amount of people were um, just caught off guard, had no idea it was a rerun. I got phone calls and emails saying that great show yesterday, and 
that was one of the best shows we've listened to and people saying they tried to call in and couldn't get through and i was like well it was because it was a rerun and i wasn't it wasn't clear to me what show it was and it was the last show that you were on uh really i i thought it was uh it might have been two was it was a few months back when uh, i thought you were absent maybe and it was just Oh, no, you were here. I was here. You were here. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. March 15th show. Yeah. Okay. But we, we were talking about the the big data issue in real estate, Zillow and Trulia. Yeah, that's it. I remember because I edited the show. I remember. Zillow yeah. And yeah. So that was a hot topic. And I worried that day that we had that conversation that many people wouldn't get what we were trying to talk about. But then Dan gave us that great example of how relevant the the conversation really was. And then it was impressive to me how much it resonated with so many people. It was interesting because I remember that day we were talking about the inaccuracies of the data on, on Zillow. And, and in a break, Dan found a piece of property that he um, he took out his he checkbook. He was ready. He yeah, was he ready was to ready to buy it. <laughs> yeah. Dan had the checkbook out already. Yeah, and, and in yeah. fact, he was kind of like, Wes, why didn't you tell me about this smoking deal already? More or less disappointed in you. Right, right. <laughs> And then we, we came back uh, in, and, and on the air, I popped up the multiple listing service, and we determined that that listing was not active and hadn't been for a number of years, and it was just a piece of bad data on Zillow, which is extraordinarily common. In fact, that's what we talked about on that show, that's that roughly 40% of the information on Zillow is inaccurate. And they don't even dispute that. They, they know it. They accept it. Um, it's their position that people don't care. And I and judging by the number of eyeballs that that they have, there's some truth to that. I mean, the the public is still relying on Zillow and Trulia for real estate related information, even though it's not accurate. And and that's a little flabbergasting to me when you can go to their competitor site, which is Realtor.com, and know that you're getting accurate information because it's MLS data. I I was talking to a lady this this um week she lives in Cayucas. she said or i asked you know how much is your home worth how much do you think it's worth in today's market well zillow says that's the starting point today she, for a lot of people she says the number but then she qualifies it saying but they have my square footage and bed bath count totally wrong yeah <laughs> well she did a permitted remodel years ago and they still have not updated the data so it's it's really kind of problematic in, in our industry the the zestimate because you can have um you can have a listing in an area that like our area is is really problematic for these avms auto valuation models and what it does is it just basically takes all of the tax data in an area calculates the average price per square foot and then applies it rather blanketly across the inventory. And so in an area where you have hundreds or thousands of tracked homes that are all very similar in quality, age, design, then that model actually works fairly well. But in an area like ours where we don't have very many large tracks and we have micro neighborhoods that are that are dramatically impacted by things that um, an automated valuation model simply can't take into consideration, like views. Views, uh, weather, little pockets of weather climate. Sure, and, sure. In San yeah. Luis, you know, the Los Osos Valley Road, everything off there off Madonna is line. impacted by the wind. Yeah. Um, and those things are not a part of the, of the calculations on those sites. So the, the challenge comes into play when either 
a person who wants to sell their home logs into Zillow and it has a uh, the inaccuracy is is in the direction that it's that it's um, puffing the value of the home, then the seller has unreasonable expectations set based on that. But what's what's more impactful is whenever you take a listing to market and you price it accurately and and the zestimate is low for whatever reason maybe it does maybe the home has a good view and the valuation model doesn't take that into consideration and it's worth more with you go to market and you've got all the data all the comps and all the justification for the pricing but the public goes to zillow and sees that the zestimate is $100,000 less than the asking price, and it creates a challenge for the seller to overcome in convincing the market that Zillow is inaccurate. So it's, uh, it causes a lot of, a lot of grief in, in our industry, but I, I think that um, there's bigger picture issues there as, as well for real estate industry and how Zillow is, is going to play into the model long term. Do you find buyers coming to coming to you with their Zillow printout saying, wait, you've got this overpriced. I mean, I've, I've sold cars, used cars, where people come with their Kelly Blue Book printout and say, oh, no, it says it's only worth this in this condition. Do, do people do the same thing when they're going to buy a home? Yes, absolutely, they do. And they use that as their leverage for negotiation? Yep, that's the starting point, and, um, and, and it's, you know, it's problematic. But it, I think it hurts the buyers in this market more than anything because inventory is still – pretty low. It's increasing, but it's still pretty low and, and things are moving pretty quickly. And, you know, a seller's not going to be duped by a Zestimate. So if a buyer gets too hung up on that, then what's likely to happen is they're going to um, disafford themselves the opportunity to uh, to actually execute a purchase based on that bad information. Well, if that if that buyer is so reliant on Zillow, they, they might end up overpaying for a different home. That's, poss <laughs> that's possible as well. Oops. Yeah. Well, we did. I, I actually sit on a, a a work group that the California Association of Realtors has assembled, and uh, we're looking at this issue, like how how can the real estate industry work with sites like Zillow and Trulia to try to create um, a better model, both for the well for the consumers of the data, but also for um, the consumers in the home buying and selling process. And we interviewed the CEO from, from Zillow. We, we did, a you know, a teleconference and, um, they basically said, yeah, we, we know our data is inaccurate and, um, yeah, we're doing what we can. But the fact of the matter is we have a lot of money and we are not going anywhere. And the real estate industry can whine and moan about our presence and, and the hiccups all they want. But the fact of the matter is we're here, so you better get used to it. So I, I, I didn't find that to be a, a very encouraging disposition. I, I think that it would make a lot of sense for um, the two parties, the, the realtors and Zillow, to come together and try to find a way that we can have a, a relationship that's mutually beneficial and that benefits the consumer. Because at the end of the day, I think that's what the real goal should be. I had a, um, a client this week that I was, I, both myself and this client benefited from you and this little talk that you give because we started 
This was one of those rare birds where they come in to get pre-qualified before they've talked with real estate agents or before they've been out shopping. Uh, most people show up either like with an accepted offer for the first time going, hey, help me, I need a loan. And we try to figure out if they qualify or not. But at any rate, I, I qualified some folks and I started talking to them about um, looking for homes. And these guys were looking at the web um going to different sites because they didn't want to miss anything going all over the place and uh checking out a lot of zillow and i brought up i said you know we had this really funny thing happen where somebody thought something was available and it just wasn't and um you know so i think it's just a good a good reminder to everybody that those those big companies that market like that and have the the bajillion dollars to to make the rules and not not provide anything of quality yet somehow i mean the most fascinating thing to me about zillow i thought you were going to say this a minute ago dan is uh, people say well zillow says my house is worth four hundred thousand, but everybody knows that zillow is a crock yeah so how is it that everybody was willing to reference Zillow and then the immediate statement they back it up with is that they know that it's BS? I, I want that. I just want people to say, um, Jason Grody is the best human ever. You don't believe it. Well, we, you got to. <laughs> That's the weirdest thing. You got to understand that we live in a different area. So many people live in major urban areas where the homes are very similar to the homes around them and zillow probably is a little more accurate in those neighborhoods so the general sentiment amongst the majority of the population is that it is more or less accurate in those areas but when you get into unique markets like ours i mean it's it's throwing darts if it's accurate or not yeah i mean it could be 50 50 I don't, at best i don't know that i think that in most places it's that way though i think that a lot of the housing stock of the u.s is eclectic um especially in the areas where before the corporate developers came in and started masterminding puds and these little you know two thousand unit neighborhoods and then they'd put up a cinder block wall and do the same thing right next yeah, but door they've been doing that for 40 years now I, I feel like it's it's more a, a, a growth problem of um, of late in well, those blooming areas. I, I think here's the issue. Z Zillow is an online model, and the goal of an online model is eyeballs. And regardless of how they've done it, they've won that game. Realtor.com used to be the most visited real estate-related website in existence and that's no longer true now zillow gets more eyeballs than any other site in the world when it comes to real estate related information and that's their goal their goal is not to provide accurate information it is not to benefit the consumer it is to gain as many eyeballs as they can because that's how the site's monetized so to get transparent on this issue with you and to explain to the listeners why it's controversial in the real estate industry. The way Zillow makes their money is they sell advertising to realtors. So once they got all the eyeballs, then they start marketing to the real estate community and say, hey, Mr. Realtor, we have all the eyeballs. If you want consumers to see you 
and to have the opportunity to contact you to transact, you need to be prominently displayed on our website, and we can do that in your zip code for $1,000 a month. Why Maybe. doesn't Realtor.com do the same thing? If Realtor, if if you have better data, can't you build the same thing but a whole lot better and sell advertising to Realtors just the same way that Zillow does but have a more accurate model than them? Well, they they do that. But unfortunately, there's uh, – and there's a couple reasons that this happened. But basically, the uh, Realtor.com is also a private company. It was originally – owned by the National Association of Realtors. And they made a decision about 15 years ago to privatize that organization. They sold it to, to Move, to a company called Move.com. And in that sell agreement, there are terms of use conditions that are placed on Realtor.com that were put in place to protect the real estate community from disintermediation. And unfortunately, a lot of the of those rules have prevented Move from making the site um, as robust and usable as the consumer would really like it. For example, it does not include any um, – it, it used to not include any new development that was not in the MLS. So oftentimes when a developer builds a thousand-track um, development, they don't put those in the MLS – but you know, real estate agents typically can go participate in the sales there. They're just not in the MLS, so those wouldn't show up on Move. They didn't allow rentals on Move because it wasn't monetized by the real estate community. But I think the bigger mistake is they simply did not spend enough money on cutting-edge technology. And when Zillow hit the street, it was a more user-friendly format. They did the homework. They understood what the consumer wanted when it came to real estate related information and they did a better job of packaging it and delivering it than NAR did. So now it's a game of catch up for realtor.com and they're they're engaged in that but they are in completely um, overpowered now by number 1 the amount of traffic that Zillow has but more importantly the budget. I mean you look at the books of these two companies and it's that it's David and and the Goliath Zillow has a lot. Well, of why money. doesn't why doesn't like National Association Realtors just pass a new law that says that it's illegal for one of their members to advertise on Zillow? Problem solved. No, it, it, because we don't want to take away the uh, the ability for any realtor to engage in any business model that they see fit, and in fact, it would be against antitrust laws. So. Um, it yeah, seems to me that this battle's in the first inning at best. You know, this this move towards online marketing of real estate is is really in its infancy. And you've got Zillow, then you've got a couple of other competitors. You've got Trulia, you've got Redfin, you've got these companies that are trying to develop this model, and none of them really has got the data side of it nailed down. And and it seems like the winner of this battle that's really in the early stages is going to be the one who gets the data as dialed in as possible the idea of automated valuation in itself isn't new i mean we've been using it on the underwriting side for more than a decade um, as a way to cross-reference and and validate appraisals so that idea of automated valuation isn't a new thing it seems like there's just a data issue here on this online marketing 
component that needs to be yeah, resolved. Yeah, but I, I, it begs the question, Dan. If you're suggesting that it's a it's a race for delivery of uh, accurate content, uh, I I don't know that that's the case because Zillow they don't have that as a goal. Zillow certainly doesn't. So this uh, is but ultimately, don't you think the consu- the consumer likes the online model? They like the ease of going on and looking and seeing what's listed and looking at information about properties and getting a relatively accurate value. And right now, the a great model doesn't exist, so they have to rely on less than great models. When someone gets a better, more accurate model, isn't the consumer going to gravitate towards that? No, See, I, I, I'm, I'm offended by the fact that Zillow doesn't they, – they recognize that they've got some data integrity issues, but that's not what they're working on because that's not what pays the bills, and they recognize that that's not what's important to them. What's, but but – Realtor Realtor.com is an accurate source for the data. It is. So Does it's it out the there right thing? now. And and so what I what I'm suggesting is that the consumer is voting and they're not voting for data accuracy. They're voting for something else that Zillow is delivering. Perhaps it's a problem in in the marketing of it. Do, I, I don't even well, know. Realtor.com Does Realtor.com doesn't tell do me what my thing? house is worth. Does it have the AVM? Does it have the listing information? In Does fact, it have it in a nice Google map? If you made a new website today that was Zillow, don't tell anybody about this, but just take Zillow and take its whole database, right? Just kind of cloak into searching through Zillow and take whatever property value you find and add a plus three to 7%, just randomly. So that my house will always be slightly more expensive than Zillow is. And then at least whenever I check Zillow, I'm gonna check the other one too and go, hey, Zillow says my house is worth 450, but um, Burke's site says my house is worth 470. Okay, so I think I, I think I've solved the problem. The problem with Realtor.com is they're not getting the word out that they do the same thing, but with accurate information. I just looked up. Well, actually, that is not right either because I'm looking up my own house and it has my square footage totally wrong. Uh oh, maybe they got <laughs> it from Zillow. <laughs> But it does have automated valuations, and what I like about Realtor.com is it's actually giving me automated valuations from multiple sources. Right. So it's and not it, relying on any one. It's giving you a range of different options from different sources. And each of those options is a range itself, so it's giving yeah. you an estimate, a low, I've and a I've got high. nine different values up here. I've got a high and low and an estimate, so three different values from three different sources, so giving me nine you know, pieces of data to consider, but I'm concerned that they have my square footage listed at, you know, a little more than like 60% of what it actually is. Well, it's, uh, didn't you just do a remodel? Did there you was a remodel footage? done in 1978 that added uh, about 800 square feet to the home. Yeah. Well, I, I, I hate that that example popped up, but I, I do think that the whole data thing is a little bit of a challenge um, in terms of accuracy. But Uh-oh. I, I gonna... think the, the point here is that we, the, the point is made. Realtor.com does what Zillow does, and it has more accurate data. And the public is still choosing Zillow. I didn't know that Realtor.com did that, and I'm in the real estate business. So well, it's, it's relatively new. But see, let me ask you, in the last six months when you've needed to jump online for some real estate-related uh, inquiry, have you gone to Zillow? 
I've gone to Zillow. I've gone to Trulia. I've gone to Redfin. I will now add this to my. I have a little folder. You can see it right here. It's home values, and it's more than that. It's it's sites that I will go to to. Um, get information, particularly for AVMs, because that's really important to discuss with our clients. Now I'm going to add Realtor.com. But as up until source. now, up until this conversation, Realtor.com wasn't even on the radar for you, right? So the Realtor NAR needs to quit spending money on their cheesy go. Now's the right time to buy a home ads and say, hey, we've got the same stuff Zillow has. Better. That would be a more effective use but of their ad dollars. But accurate. Right. The exactly. same, but accurate. And market that. Market that we've got the same tools, but accurate data, and don't use my house in, as an example. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I, I see that Jason pulled his house up too, and um, you know, the, I think it begs it begs discussion about the whole AVM model because the the range on Jason's house was about $200,000 from the three mine's, different sources. Mine's $250,000 spread. I've got a low of 400 and a high of 650. Yeah. I, I think that relying on AVMs is is problematic and that's uh, it, this is also an example of why I don't think the the realtor is um, at at risk of being disintermediated. You need somebody to come in Look at the data. Someone that has expertise in the in that marketplace and mash the data around to figure out what the true value is. And there's never going to be an an AVM that does that well. I think they're too young. I, I think as as they grow with the history and and they learn sales trends over a longer period of time, I think they'll get a lot better at it. But. Yeah, there's it's a challenge. It's real estate's not something that's easy to identify the value because there's like like we were describing, there's views that are hard to quantify. There's Man, there's smells kind of that impact the value of a home. It, totally. Whether it's inside from some nasty smoker that smoked in there for thirty years or outside because there's a dairy upwind. There's a lot that goes into it, and expecting a computer is ever going to do that is just crazy. Yeah, talk. maybe one house is next door to the people who park four cars on their lawn, and that's just— They got a tarp, a tattered blue tarp for a garage door. and Sure. Yeah, yard trophies, cut their grass and find three mopeds. Those guys, those impact your value. Hey, it's 1130, you guys. we got to do a commercial break. And uh, we have just a half an hour to go. When we get back, we'd love to hear from you. If you got a question or a comment, you can give us a call. 543-8830 is the number. 543-KVEC. Stick around after this short break for more Mortgage Matters. To ask a question or make a comment, call 543-8830 or 800-549-5832. Mortgage Matters on KVEC News Talk 920. We'll be back after these messages from our sponsors. The state of denial is a drag and a trial. When I bought my cheap insurance, should have known this day would come. Now I've had an accident and I'm feeling quite alone. Called them at least 20 times, but they won't pick up the phone. Without personal service, my policy's kind of worthless. Get to a better state, State Farm. Switch to State Farm and you can save. To find out more in San Luis Obispo, call Agent Susan Rodriguez. Hi, this is Jason Grody at Central Coast Lending, host of Mortgage Matters on KVEC. Let me and my staff of mortgage experts help you buy your next home. We promise to close on time, on budget, with no surprises. Give Central Coast Lending a call today. When you buy or refinance a home, just call 543-LOAN. Just call 543-LOAN. We're the mortgage experts on the Central. 
Central Coast, Central Coast Lending. Through seven presidential administrations, bull and bear markets, and unprecedented change, Blakesley and Blakesley has been here helping residents of the Central Coast reach their financial goals. So if you need retirement advice beyond Social Security, want to roll over an old 401k, or simply seek guidance through an important financial decision, visit Blakesley and Blakesley in San Luis Obispo, Paso Robles, and Santa Maria. Blakesley and Blakesley, for the service you deserve and the advice you trust. Member FINRA and SIPC. For those of us who live here on the Central Coast, we know this is a unique place to have a home. And for over 30 years, Patterson Realty has been a vital part of San Luis Obispo County. Patterson professionals have led the way in real estate by adapting to new market conditions to make sales happen. What they offer is the quality of their people, agents working just for you. Get the experts at Patterson Realty on your side. Experience the Patterson difference. Call 544-8662 or online at pattersonrealty.com. The 5th Annual Oyster and Beer Feast kicks off Sunday, June 8th at Tognazini's Dockside 2. The party starts at 11 a.m. Tickets are just 20 bucks and include a half dozen oysters with your choice of size, raw or barbecue, a pitcher of beer or soda, entertainment, and live auction. Plus, free corn dogs and sodas for the kids. 100% of the proceeds help keep fireworks in Morro Bay. We'll see you at the 5th Annual Oyster and Beer Feast Sunday, June 8th at Tognazini's Dockside 2. Presented by Morro Bay 4th, Tognazini's, and this radio station. Welcome back. You're listening to Mortgage Matters with hosts Dan and Jason from Central Coast Lending. If you want to join the conversation, call the show at 543-8830 or 800-549-5832. Now, here's Dan and Jason. All right, everybody, welcome back to Mortgage Matters. Thanks much for sticking through the break. Jim, there's always a reference. What, who are you calling crazy? This is this whole Yeah, it's just crazy. Thing. The whole it's thing is crazy. crazy. It's just all relying whacked. on the web. <laughs> Zillow and whatever. And, you know, it's just all whacked out. Yeah. I think the, the lesson is just call a good agent. There you go. Yeah, I think this just is proving, regardless of the source, even Realtor.com, that the data online is not accurate. I'm an online guy. Dan has dirty fingers here from the newspaper. Who's the realtor that you were saying has a clever ad running saying... Advertising her buyers? Her qualified buyers. Um, it is Kristen Crabtree with Century 21 Hometown. That is a great idea yeah i love it and and one of the things i want to say is that you know wes has had some pretty good success in the last few <laughs> years um, recruiting some folks to work at patterson realty there's a lot of phenomenal realtors there and this price committee that you guys have working um is that something that you're willing to talk about on the radio Sure. I mean, it's a it's a point of differentiation for for us, and it serves uh, our clients really well. And I'll be happy to explain it. But do you want to visit with John from Arroyo? Yeah, Grande first? it seems like a good idea. Let's go ahead and take this phone call. Here we have John calling from Arroyo Grande. Good morning. Welcome to Mortgage Matters. Hey, how are you? Good. How about yourself? Okay. Uh, here's here's my situation. I'm a uh, small business owner here in uh, in Arroyo Grande. And I need to refinance my house. Uh, 
And I don't have the income that I did since our last little uh, five or six-year depression. I need to refinance. I've kind of delayed it because my first mortgage is real good at two and seven-eighths. Okay. Uh, it, it was a it was an adjustable rate, and uh, it's tied to the one-year treasury. So it's been really low, and it's been really good for us. Yep. And But, you know, that's not going to last forever, obviously. Right. But, and... How do I go about getting it refinanced? Now, I have a first and a second. I took out a second. I completely remodeled the house. It was 2,000 square feet, and it's now 4,000 square feet. Okay. Uh, what's the chances of being able to refinance when my income is down from what it was five years ago? Hey, well, I've look, been in this house 25 years. This is a this is a pretty straightforward answer here. The uh, most every loan program we have is going to limit your debt to income ratio right about 50. percent So this is a this is a real simple thing. Of I can tell you exactly what you're going to need income wise to qualify for, and then you're going to make the the tough decision to either figure out how to earn enough to do that. And then the flip side of the coin is we have people that understand they've you, like you. I'm, I mean, I'm only going to assert here you've owned your house for 25 years. You just put a significant of time and money into the property to improve the quality and square footage of it. The last thing you want to do is have this plan, this payment double when interest rates go up and find yourself forced to sell it. So. The, yes, your only correct. option in the short term is you, you got two choices here. Figure out how to earn more money at work or maybe even strategically manage your taxes over the next couple of years here. Choose to write off less, not slip every little expense you can in under there to drop the taxable income and actually write off less so that you can show the income needed to qualify. I can show you what that looks like and tell you how much money it's going to take to do it. You can go over to the account and find out if you did that, what are the tax ramifications? It's going to cost you money one way or the other, but going that route of you know showing the amount of income you need to qualify is going to be a better route than being forced to sell your home because you can't afford the payment. Hey, John, okay. h- how much do you owe on your okay. home on the first and second? Okay, I would need about six hundred fifteen, six fifteen. Yeah, six fifteen thousand. And. and uh, you know, the the only other thing I – maybe Dan was going down this road, but sometimes reverse mortgage is something that could work for that too. The, the HARP loans, which are under the Home Affordable Refinance, those just don't – those don't work very well for somebody like you because Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac have to own your loan. They didn't usually do well, adjustable rate loans, and they also don't pay off second liens. So – it, oh, okay. it I wouldn't, didn't do, know that. It wouldn't right. do anything to resolve your second lien problem at all. All it does is if you are eligible, it it resubordinates your second yeah. lien, but it leaves it at its same term. So you yeah. and I, I would venture to guess your second is probably a few hundred thousand, right? It, it, yeah, the second is two fifty. Yeah. Um and it's you know it, it's very nice piece of property. I mean it's two and a half acres. Yeah. So uh, you're two bedroom uh, guest house. Your first, your first lien is going to change every year, up or down, depending on the the market. Your second could change every month, depending on probably prime, and those usually have a cap rate of twenty four percent. So, 
I mean, therein lies the motivation. I worry more about the second for you than I do about the first. And um, I do think that you it's time to put the pencil to the paper and figure out how much you do need to make. And the other thing, too, that I'll caution you and everybody else is that you don't know how to evaluate tax returns from an underwriting standpoint. We right. do. There are certain okay. there are certain things in there that we can add back in, like depletion and depreciation. Just this week, I'm doing a loan for a guy that's a driver, and he writes off ninety thousand dollars a year based on a mileage deduction on his Schedule C. That can be added back too. So there are things that people don't know that are re re they're reducing your taxable income, but they would actually count in your qualification. And if you've been like the underwriting yourself at home, saying I've put this off because I don't make enough you could be shooting yourself in the foot because you don't know what we can and can't do with your actual tax return. So I think it's time to make an appointment and come in yeah. and get, get some good counsel. The other thing okay. that we can do it, for certain loans, if, if there's enough positive things going for your loan scenario, we can qualify you off of just one year of tax return. So you really only have to have the most recent year looking pretty good in order to qualify. We right. don't necessarily have to look at that yeah. second year of tax return. Okay. Well, the, the, you know, it is improving, um, you know, the sales, the, the sales of, like, it's an e-commerce company. So, and, okay. Uh, we've been in the business 30 years, uh, only 15 online, but 30 years total. Well, John, to, to go through that exercise just to see if you can qualify, it takes very little time. I mean, really, we, we'd want to look at the tax returns and, and it would take us just a I mean, less than an hour probably to go through it and give you an opinion. Yep. Give okay. us a call this week. The number is 543-LOAN. That'll get okay. us at any of our offices. We'd be happy to help. Okay. I appreciate that. Thanks, I'll John. I'll give you guys a call. All right. Thank take you. care. All right. Wesley, I started to ask you about this because uh, let me go back and sort of foreshadow this little piece again real quick. Um Patterson Realty has some really talented agents in there, and it um, it shouldn't surprise me, but it does, that people just keep flocking over to you because you guys have such a great reputation and have some really uh, well-known, skilled people working for you. And I, you guys are doing something a little bit different than most of the other companies I'm aware of um, in terms of working with sellers and, and coming up with the... Uh, the Patterson opinion of value or proposed list price. And um, I thought it just would be a good idea if you, you talked a little bit about that. Well, the, the pricing committee, as we call it internally, is, is really born out of a different approach to the real estate business that we have, which is a collaborative model. So traditionally in real estate agents, they're independent contractors. And even within the umbrella of a brokerage, they compete with one another for business. But when we started to really evolve our business model uh, a number of years back, we recognized that, that our greatest strength was the quality of the people that we had. I mean, we had two attorneys, two appraisers, a CPA. We have marketing experts, an architect, uh, all of these really, really talented people with diverse backgrounds. And we had this ability to work together that seemed unusual. And we started to believe that if we could leverage that collaboration for the benefit of our clients, we might really serve our clients better. 
one of the things that was born out of that is, is our approach to pricing. So the first thing that has to be understood about pricing is that it's not our decision. It's the homeowner's decision how to price their house. Our job is to provide honest counsel and data so that the decision that the seller makes about pricing will be a good decision. Wait, I thought realtors just went to Zillow and got a number and said, hey, we could sell this place for 409. That's what Zillow said. If that were true, then we might be disintermediated, <laughs> I think. Um, but in the traditional relationship between a seller and an agent, uh, what what happens traditionally is the agent will go compile what we call a CMA, a, com a comparative market analysis. You pull the comps, the things that have sold, things that are in escrow, and active listings that are competitive to the potential listing. And the agent would go give to the seller an opinion of value. And then usually there would be a push and pull between the agent and the seller because most of the time the seller thinks his house is worth more than the market data shows. Always. So there's always this kind of discord or this disconnect, and, um, and, and it could be a challenge to navigate for, for both parties. So what we've done is just put together a structure through which we get a number of qualified agents that have expertise in the micro market of the subject property to go actually tour the property and then independent of communication with one another, they submit a report to the potential listing agent, which speaks to the property's strengths, the property's weaknesses, critical marketing concepts specific to that piece of property, and ultimately render an opinion of value based on how that agent would structure an offer if they were to write one in today's market. So what happens is the seller ends up with this cross-section of information from multiple active agents in that specific marketplace. And it's not just an opinion of value, it's an explanation why. Strengths, weaknesses, things that can be improved to increase the market value and shorten the market time. And this is incredibly powerful because it, it really gives the seller the data, the fodder, and the ammunition that they need to make wise decisions about selling. And it, it separates the listing agent and the seller from that adversarial role of negotiating with one another about setting the list price. Right. So it's been really beneficial just um, from a business model standpoint, but we tracked the results for the first year that we implemented this. And we saw a market decrease in market time and a significant increase in the list to sales price ratio of the sellers that participated with the pricing committee versus those that chose to just price the home themselves. How much faster are the homes selling? Um, our average market time for the non-participants was um, about 45 or 50 days at that time. And the pricing committee homes were selling on average in about 28 days. And, and the, the list to sales price ratio, the differential there was about 4%. So it, it went from about um, 93% of list price to about 97% of list price on average. And have you guys tracked 
if you took like a blended average of the pricing committee's suggested values versus when it actually went to market and sold for how tight that number is? No, we haven't studied that, and that would be interesting to do, but um, the thing about pricing a property is, you know, it is, it's an art. It's a practice, not a science. And sometimes if we get six opinions of value on a piece of property through the pricing committee, um, I think the most common thing is that you'll get one pretty low, you'll get one pretty high, and then you get a grouping in the middle. And the grouping tends to reflect the, the accurate market value. Sometimes they all come in in a grouping, and sometimes there's this wild divergence that's very difficult to navigate and explain. You know, so it's, I mean, it's not perfect. And there have been times, recently we had it, we had a situation where um, an agent utilized the pricing committee, the seller was interviewing multiple agencies, they we recommended a price. They ended up going with a different company and uh, a price about $130,000 higher than our pricing committee had recommended. We kind of laughed and patted ourselves on the back and said, well, they'll never sell that thing for that much money. And about two days later, it went into escrow. So I'm not going to tell you that it's perfect. I'm not going to tell you that we're flawless. <laughs> but um, I, I do believe that in the bigger picture of serving our clients. It's a tool that we are able to leverage the collaborative approach of our business model to the benefit of our clients. And the vast majority of times it makes a significantly positive difference. The thing I think that appeals to me about your pricing committee committee is one of the same reasons why I think that, um, you know, now that we're a direct lender, we haven't given up any not a single one of our 50 bank approvals on the broker side and we still do broker loans dan what's the what's the ratio i mean are we we're talking probably brokering is less because it's not it's not as um it's not as necessary like on the average transaction oftentimes people are sort of round peg round hole and the brokered stuff today is like we really have to broker this because we need some unique help. So what do you, I would venture to say it's probably 20 to 30% of our 20, businesses. 20% in the first quarter. Okay. So based on that report, I did is 20%. And, and so one of the things though about that is that just having the, the more eyes on it, seeing the additional um, outlets and opportunities it's like I, I counsel my people. It's like, well, if you're if you're just going to navigate this on your own, you're going to allege to be savvy enough to just do your mortgage yourself, and you're just smart enough that you're going to walk on into Wells Fargo because that's you like the picture of the horse-drawn carriage, um, and you're, that's your deal. That, to me, is almost like just picking that single real estate agent. And do you know – are you picking today the one person that's unusually low without great explanation or the person that's unusually high? Did you get lucky and find the person in the middle of the pack that's average with everybody else? Or do you, you know, that in that example where you cite a competing firm chose some stuff that you guys found not grounded in logic at all and seemed like laughable, um, they actually sold at that. So that just demonstrates to me the importance of 
not only interviewing and working with multiple people to learn about, well, what is your approach to this and how do you address this situation? How many heads will you put together? I thought you were going to say they went and met with three other firms, both of which were individuals. They were widely separated. And the fact that you brought 14 people to their house and gave 14 man hours of walking around the property and giving constructive criticism and guidance facilitating an intelligent decision that you can't second guess later, it was the clear winner. And then you tell me that, you know, in this one particular case, somebody just threw the dart in the barrel and, and hit one. Yeah. Well, and it, the, you know, there's, uh, that story is, uh, is unfinished. I mean, that escrow is not closed yet. I, I, we question whether the property can appraise at the value that they were listed at, whether it's even at escrow in escrow at that value. Um, so that, that story's yet undone, but you know, sometimes I just think it's worth telling, um, those kinds of stories to demonstrate that we're human. We don't think we're perfect. The, you know, we have a great, a, a great approach and a great system. Uh, it doesn't mean it's flawless and, and I don't know, I, I suppose I'm just kind of a transparent that way. I appreciate that about you. Um, you know, every now and again, I'll admit some kind of defeat or something like that, but it's kind of rare. So I'd. I was definitely looking at you a little bit like, what's this guy doing here? <laughs> Just brought up an example of one where it didn't work, but I'm trying to. Yeah, well, I mean, I can I could tell you, you know, many many stories about where it, where it did tell work. Tell me and, one because well, most recently you told me a story about where it didn't. I I can tell you that from um, from the company's perspective, um, it, it's just a great a great tool for the agents in the relationship with the sellers because first of all. Not many sellers are told when, when an agent sits across the table from them right out of the gate, look, Mr. Seller, pricing is your decision. Yeah. It's yours to make. I'm going to try to give you lots of good information so that when you make it, it'll be a good one. But um, that alone, giving the seller the comfort to know that it's their decision to make, I, I think really makes a big This difference. is how I do interest rates, and I love it. If somebody walks in and goes, what's the interest rate? Well... It's really not that simple. You know, which interest rate would you pick? What do you mean me pick? I don't know anything about it. Well, now we know what our job is. I'll show you all of your interest rate options. And I show them from paying fees, that points thing to get a really low rate, increased closing costs. There's a calculation to figure out when the return falls in your favor. We can move the rate up a little bit to drop the closing costs, try to find some equilibrium. We can go to the far side, which is increasing the rate enough to where there are zero closing costs. All of those options exist on most loan transactions. And so I tell people pretty early on, that's that's up for you to decide. And I am happy to, to facilitate this and I'll teach you how to evaluate it and give you all of the stuff. Now, mine's a little more cut and dry because it's it boils simply down to math. Once you understand the logic and can do division, uh, you're in good shape with you guys. There's still that art component to it of knowing in, in the, the nuances of a market and all that kind of stuff. And then you never know who's just going to come along with a briefcase full of cash and defy all logic and overpay or something. Right. For us, it's just math. And so I, I love that as when I, a better, the best referral for me is somebody that says I'm getting my loan with X bank in town. Awesome come on over and see me right after that and let me blow your mind with 
showing you what the options are. And then when I point out to you, yeah, that one you're holding right now, the 4.625 for only 2000 in closing costs that you thought was a great deal. My 4.625 is minus $4,000 in closing costs. And if I do go ahead and charge you 2000 in closing costs, it's going to be four and a quarter. This is what that bank would have made on you if you just went and signed up hook, line, and sinker. And people are always pretty shocked when they actually see the real numbers in there. And so um, it's great for us to be able to empower the client to know how to evaluate that and to be able to sit down and do it and then show them how we stack up. Yeah, that's what I love about your model, and I think it's similar to, to ours in that that really what what we do is try to maintain our expertise – and educate the client you know we approach this thing not as a sales not as a salesman but with the heart of a teacher and it makes all the difference in the world you're really empowering people to make good decisions for themselves rather than you know trying to coax them or sell them into a box that you want them to fit in well in the mortgage world i mean we we've kind of turned it upside down because usually what happens is you call up and you say, hey, what's your rate on a 30-year fix today? Four and a half, half a point. Thanks. Call the next guy. Um, and it's literally like they just kind of draw a number out of thin air as far as what they think you might be willing to pay. That's a pretty crazy way of doing it. When you strip it down and look at all the options, now we have to lay our cards on the table as far as, well, this is what every one of these costs you, and you can begin to figure out what the actual, um, you know, cost and commission is in the transaction. But uh, it's just a different way of approaching it, and and yeah, that that's I like that you said with the heart of a teacher as opposed to a salesman. I always just tell my clients that I just I'm here to facilitate you. I'm the expert for sure, and I have the access and knowledge of how to walk this out, but I'll school you up as much as you're willing to learn about how to participate in the decision. Hey, we're, we're drawn to the end here of the show. I never brought up the stinking uh, construction stuff. I, I thought we were going to spend a long time today talking about those uh, construction permits and starts, but hey, we didn't do it. Next time. Yeah, hey Wes, would you uh why don't you tell us what an ideal referral for you or client for you would be today and then follow that up with your contact info. <laughs> well, uh, an ideal referral today would definitely be on the listing side, so um inventory's low and we can make a lot of buyers really happy with good product. So if you've been thinking about selling, um, it's... Uh, and you want to use the pricing committee. You want to use the pricing committee. Let us demonstrate how this thing works and how it can benefit you. Give us a call. The office is 544-8662. You're welcome to call me direct at 801-7061. We have uh, lots of good real estate-related information at pattersonrealty.com. Uh, even more, more great data uh, relative to the local market at slowcountyhomes.com. Visit those sites and uh, give us a jingle. Guys, if you need any loan help at all, um, like our caller earlier today, I think was Joe, um, we are always available to just help. If you want to sit down with your tax returns or whatever issue it is that you think you're working on, um, don't be that you know, sitting on my couch, underwriting myself into a denial kind of person.
come into the office and let me tell you what your options are. Uh, I'll show you where it is you might be able to to move some things around and maybe create some qualification. Don't deny your own loan. Let us look at a way to approve it. You can call us this week. The number is 543-LOAN, which is 543-5626. You can find us on the web at centralcoastlending.com. Go out there and enjoy that great weather. We'll be back uh, next week with more Mortgage Matters. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks again, Wes. 